You are listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for veterans to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was former Coast Guard guardsman um, and writer and actor, Regan Pettigrew. So I really think of Regan as a man not of this time. I think that's my biggest takeaway from this interview. You'll hear us talk about it during the interview, but... I love it. He is, he's a throwback kind of dude. Um, the Bukowski influence, which I think is pretty common in the veteran writing community. I think a lot of veterans, I'm thinking of like Buck Bulliard, um, Mason to some degree. Um, I got a, I'm blanking right now. It's probably late in the day. Anyway, I feel like Bukowski has had an influence on the veteran writing community. <clears throat> but what I also love is Reagan's influence uh, from Jack Kerouac. You really see it in Reagan's book, uh, Suicide in Slow Motion. And that's what brought Reagan to my attention. He, uh, as I, you'll hear us talk about in the episode, I was like, I think we're catfishing him because Dex was talking to him on our DMs. And I think he thought he was talking to me. Um, about stuff, which didn't really matter. I mean, she was, you know, kind of teeing him up so we could get him on the podcast, but, um, but it was, but it was like one of the few times I haven't had a lot of direct comms with somebody before the show. Um, but he, uh, I really enjoyed his book and I really enjoyed the style of it. I enjoyed the lengths at which he wrote, uh, his sentences. I enjoyed how he phrased things. I enjoyed his characters a lot um, and the scope of the book. And as you'll hear, I mean, it's not, you know, completely fictional. I mean, he was drawing on a lot of his own life experiences and on his own physical journey, but um, I I just really enjoyed the style. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciated the fact that he's someone who is relishing writing fiction and telling his stories. And um, yeah, I think you guys really going to enjoy this one. I really did. And I love his confidence. I love where he's, um, that he's feeling secure and um, on purpose. Now getting this book out there, uh, I think it bodes well for his future projects to come. So without much further ado, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director of Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of Regan Pettigrew. All right, Regan Pettigrew, welcome to the show. How's it going, man? It's going good. Um, So as I told you, I felt bad when we were... When we were booking you, because you were talking with, so what happens is Dex does our social media and she dives on, which I appreciate. She dives on, starts talking to people. But then I was like, I like 
jumped in late on the conversation. I was like, Reagan doesn't know who he's talking to. He, he thinks it might be me. It might be you. I was like, dude, I think you're catfishing him. I don't think he has, knows who the fuck he's talking to from vet rep. So let's make sure he knows who's who. So he's not totally wigged out when I jump on here and he did, and he's like, has no idea what to expect. So it's kind of a weird way. It's the first time we've <laughs> gotten into that with you, but That's it was, uh, I'm glad it worked out. I'm glad we're here at the right time. Everything synced up. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad it worked out. Perfect. Yeah, man. Me too. And yeah, by the way, you're good on sound. So yeah, Thank you. don't worry. We're very meta here. We kind of talk about all of our foibles on air, which is got it, got kind it, of, kind of uh, trippy. So listen, I, I, I read the book. I want you to know that um, I don't like going on and talking to somebody that's not knocked themselves out to do a piece of work and then go. So what's your book about? Oh yeah, well where you know and like you sound like yeah. a jackass, and, and I think it's disrespectful to you when you've been putting in blood, sweat, and tears to, to write the damn thing. Um, let me start with the obvious question. How does it feel to have the book out now? It's really weird. Um, everybody um, keeps asking that. Friends or family or just random people I keep meeting that I've been reaching out. And, you know, How does it feel? And I'm like, yeah. some days I, I feel on top of the world, you know, and other days um, it's too big to really uh, stomach. You know what I mean? You just kind of, it, it's giant. You know what I mean? It's not just oh, you, you did this or that. No, it's you worked on a project for six years of your life. You know, you yeah. spent a serious amount of time. And now that it's over, it's like, okay, there's what do you do next? Um, how do you navigate relationships? How, what do you do for your passion project now? What is guiding you in your life? You know, and so, but the thing that I, everybody keeps pinning on, everyone that actually has known me in these past six years, everyone keeps pinging on it and just, you know, just accept it, man. Like be, be happy, be proud of it. You're not reaching anymore. Just you, you went, you got to the point, you got to that top of that mountain and you're there now. You just have to accept it. So I'm, I'm working on that. Just accepting that you did it and it's, and it's over. Did I see on social that you were in the, in the studio recording it? Yeah. Like yeah. Audio I'm, version. Yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> I'm doing an audiobook too. I, I've been in love with spoken word and like the beat poets since I was mm -hmm. a kid. So I'm doing my audio book and um, I'm hoping to go just full bore with that as well. So that's going to be out April 24th. And that's this, right? It's the audio book of this, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Dude, badass. Yeah. That's great that you're doing that and, and kind of giving it every single avenue, like opening up every single avenue for the book. I think that's really smart. You know, honestly, it's between the whole beat poet thing that I just spoke about, but also it's like. The reason why Goggins' book, I think, in my personal perspective, is so amazing is because it's Goggins being Goggins. You know what I mean? And you know, when you hear somebody else read one of his lines, it's not the same. You want to hear this guy, what right. he's been through. And there are even moments I was talking about with my lady, like where I felt I went too in on like one of the chapters um, called Home Sweet Home. And I'm like, I don't know, is this going to be cringeworthy? Are people going to judge it? Because it's very obvious that I'm emotional as I'm speaking. I'm not just narrating it, you know, blah, da, 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 da. I'm like, I'm, I'm reliving it. I'm going in on it. So it's, she's like, no, it's, it's going to be, um, people are going to get touched by that. They're yeah. going to understand that you feel what you mean. You trained as an actor too, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about just your general artistic journey. Who were you as a kid? Who were you growing up? Were you an artist? Were you an athlete? Were, did you were somebody that had your eye on the military early on? What was no, I was an artist who didn't give himself permission to be an artist is what it was. Okay. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, I was a really angry kid because I had all these, 
like my friends didn't even know that I actually wanted to be an actor or wanted to be, get into music or wanted to write books. Like nobody really knew these things about me. It was just something that was in me. And so when I was growing up, I, I, I would go to shows and I remember like I would see like Rancid or I would see like Pennywise or I'd see like Metallica or Iron Maiden. I'm like, I've got to do this. And I would see plays and I would like, I would just stare at these people, but not like as a, a storyteller and be wowed by the story. But like, I would see the actor as an actor. I'm like, I need to do this. Like there's something, mm. but it's, it's not because for an ego thing. Like for me, like the, the, all these things, it's like a spiritual enlightenment. I find like I, a deeper meaning in myself as a man that I get to understand. I, I, I grow through my artistic endeavors. That's how I find that next level, the next higher consciousness. It's that's what it is for me. So, yeah. What did you, first start doing artistically what did you give yourself permission to actually do so in the beginning it was just drawing it was these real kind of i guess and this is going to sound weird as hell but like real like hieroglyphic unabomber as kind of drawings were like like it's so different than my tattoos it's like everything has a meaning everything's kind of mixed in the words have like five different meanings i get in um i got into writing I, like not very well, but like those like kind of coded, like, you know, hidden meanings inside writings. And I got really into those and measure those into drawings. So just like, you know, just doodles, just stupid, stupid doodles. Um, what did you, oh, how did how'd they strike you? I mean, what, did you feel like you were letting off pressure by doing it? Did you feel inspired by it? What was your takeaway from it? It was just kind of, it was like drawing tattoos. That's all it okay. was. It was like, okay, yeah. this is, I can put, it's like writing poems, but you're doing pictures instead. That's all it was. You know, like I, like whether it, how do I better explain it? Um, whatever little things I was going through, whether it was a book I was reading or whether it was a show I had been to or an experience that I was, you know, dealing with in my life, I was able to just write out these doodles and it was just kind of something that I could just put all myself into and no one had to see it. It was just for me. Mm -hmm. It was like okay. a journal, essentially. It was a picture journal. So if that was bubbling underneath the surface, what was on the surface? What were you doing? What were you trying to do? What were you trying to fit in with? Um, I didn't really fit in, honestly, whatsoever. Um, when I was in high school, I didn't fit in whatsoever. So I kind of shifted from that and I traded off schools and when I went to this new high school, I decided that I was going to be, I wasn't going to be a loser. I wasn't going to be kind of an outcast anymore. I was going to be popular. I was going to be hmm. friendly and all that. And so I got really into drinking and I just got really into partying and all that. And that kind of, I guess, bombed the creative endeavors that I wanted to do, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like um, there's this really great book who talks about it with Stephen Pressfield. Um, and he talks about the fact that, it's resistance. And what we'll do sometimes is create shadow lives, right? So I maybe wasn't playing music like a rock star. I wasn't actually acting in the plays that I saw. I wasn't writing books or writing poetry, but I was living like a rock star. And that was good enough, I suppose, at the time. But the whole time, inner me, I'm like, dude, this is not what you want to do. Like, I would be, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I would be like a 15 year old kid having conversations with adults at parties. And I'd be like, what am I doing with my life? Like talking like I'm a middle-aged man, like having a midlife crisis at 15, like it was yeah. just, there was a calling and I wasn't answering that. So when the high school was about to end, what did you think you were going to do? What did you want to do? What was the path? 
So I, um, my cousin was already in the Coast Guard, right? He was an ET3 at the time. That's an electronics technician, uh, third class for everyone that's not vet. But he um, was going to do this thing called the Tiger Cruise, right? Which is where you get to take a member of your family on your cutter and you get to go from point A to point B. And, mm-hmm. and he had been really pushing me to go into the Coast Guard. He's like, you need to do this. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, but I, I wanted to be a chef and, and I'll get into that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a chef and I wanted to go to the Cordon Bleu in Paris and I had these ideas that I wanted to go because I, I love cooking. I love the culinary arts. So I went on ship in San Diego and we went from San Diego to Seattle. And the first day, never got so sick in my life. <laughs> I, it was the only time I ever got sick on a cutter too. And I puked off the side of the boat, the puke hits me in the face and it was so gross. But, and we took some medicine and I went downstairs into the bar- under the birthing and I fell asleep and I woke up and it was two in the morning. And I went on the back of the fan tail. I've never seen so many stars in my entire life. Like it was like a movie moment. Like the planets were literally aligning. It was some sort of like amalgamation that only happens like every 20 years apparently. And it was like the most beautiful moment ever. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, I got to do this. So I, the moment we pulled into Seattle, I called my mom and I'm like, hey, you need to sign the papers. I'm going to the Coast Guard. I'm going to do this. So two months after I graduated, I, I left. I was gone. Why did your cousin think you needed to do it? What, what, what was it about it that made him go, oh, yeah, Reagan's got to do this? My cousin was a lot closer to me than most people were. Um, he was basically like a brother to me, and he knew. I never spoke to him about what I was doing. I never spoke to him about how I was basically raising myself. But he just he knew that I needed some direction. He knew I needed to get out. You know, I needed gotcha. to get out of Long Beach and, and get my life together. Yep. Because I wasn't going anywhere. Gotcha. So when you join the Coast Guard, what's your reaction? Is it everything you thought it would be? Or no. <laughs> when, when, when does disillusion set in? Oh, buddy. <laughs> no. Um, I met all the cooks on his cutter, on the, um, on the midget, right? And I, I was asking them, how hard is it? You know, and they're like, well, as long as you really love cooking as much as you say you do, you're going to be fine. And man... You, you talk about uh, self-destructive cycles, uh, um, social issues. You talk about not even knowing how to just make friends, like everything under the sun, like, man, like from the day, from even just the day I got into boot, like the first day I got off the, onto the, uh, the footprints, I'm sitting there and this, you know, this MST one's yelling at me and I'm like, what the hell did you just do, man? But it, it was a, uh, it was a giant learning curve. It was an absolute needed learning curve too at that. How did you feel graduating basic? Did you feel like you had changed? Did you feel like you'd matured? Did you feel like there's like an asshole puckering feeling like you made a really bad life decision? Like what what was your feeling now that you were like graduated in pride? Yeah, absolute pride. I was, um, I, my buddy, Michael Goins beat me out for most physically fit. And I, we were going head to head the whole time. I was, so stoked. Um, I learned a hell of a lot and it made me absolutely better in every single way. It made me just get out over a lot of my crap. Okay. You and know? you went in and you went in as a cook. Yeah. I went in, already had a C school set up pre- okay. prior to that. And what was the training like then to get MOS qualified as a cook? Was it, did you find it satisfying? Was it scratching the itch? For the culinary arts or not, not so totally much? but because I, I timing is everything and i got when i went into the uh, c school in petaluma california my um the master chief who ran it 
right, was a actual executive chef. He was he was a top tier, like really, really high end culinary trained French chef. Wow. And so because of that, he went and then hired all these other guys who were also ex, you know, chefs. And he got those guys in and then he ranked them up. And so those were the people teaching you. They were people that loved what they did. And they were just, if not crazier than like Gordon, you know, Gordon Ramsay and all those right. kind of people. They right. was, it was awesome. Like we, I remember um, the guy who did our pastry chefs and they took us, uh, caught us some desserts and all that. He'd be, you know, 11 o'clock at night till three in the morning. It was this grueling hour. Like you just went all around the board on the time zone. And you just be sitting with him and you just learn everything. And it was like being in Paris. It was amazing. Wow. It really was. Cause he like, he was the epitome of this stereotypical, like French, like Navy cook, you know, with the mustache and the accent and the, just the insane amount of cigarettes that he smoked. And, but he was just so passionate. And so I, I gained the experiences I had hoped to gain by going to culinary school. So when you graduated from the C school, were you inspired? Were you like, fuck yeah, I'm chefing the hell out of this place? Yeah, that was, that was the idea. I was going to bust my ass and learn French and then go from there. But I didn't expect to get a cutter is the thing. I expected to get stationed Seattle or San Fran, but I screwed up and I got a, I got a chit for being late on one of the sessions. So I got bumped out. Because everybody else had like perfect scores and I had a one late chip. So I got screwed. And so I ended up on the Sherman. So, you know, everybody else was like, okay, so if you guys got stations, you guys got it. For the next four years, you're going to be have a great time. And, you know, and the senior chief was like, but whoever you guys got cutters, it's going to be, this is just the beginning of how hard you're going to work. Like, because cutters are for, for cooks, there's like a 70 percentile of getting kicked out or drug issues or alcohol dependency. Like it's, like the, it, it's a meat grinder is what I'm that's, trying to say. So that's really interesting. Talk, for somebody that, you know, never served on ships, talk about why that is. Is it, and, and let me let me throw out a couple of things that immediately jumped to mind. One, cooks and chefs can lead a pretty rough life just in general. Like forget about the military, but mm-hmm. then the confined space of a boat and not a lot of other options, another other ways to blow off steam it kind of makes it a bit of a, you know, pressure cooker situation. Is that kind of what it is? Or Yeah, I mean, just else? being a chef in the civilian life, I mean, we're we're very famous that you want to talk like Maddie Matheson, you want to talk like, you know, um, Marco Pierre White, you know, like all the greats, you yeah. know, like Jesus, like even um, Emma Lugasi like talks about like how when he was in culinary school, he got caught up for cocaine. So it's like, right. you leave a very crazy lifestyle. Right. So when right. you're on ship and – you're working these insane amount of hours and the people that you're around aren't always the best. Like our department was just, we were a bunch of pirates. Like it was nuts. So you have to find something to kind of have an outlet. And for me, excuse me, it was um, working out. I got extreme. I mean, I was always into fitness and like martial arts since I was a kid, but like for this, it was like, this is how I deal with it. Like we wouldn't get off of work sometimes till 12 o'clock at night. We do 17, 18 hour shifts and then it'd be, okay, I need to go work out for two hours. Otherwise, I'm just going to go beat the crap out of somebody. It was just, you had to get it out. You had to. What's, what's the satisfaction like of being a chef or a cook on a cutter? Because obviously, you're not feeding the most distinguished palates that you'll ever feed. But I mean, is, does the quality drop? Does, is there like a lot of pride in, hey, we're still churning out great chat? Like, what is that like? 
it's a mixed bag because um, a the Coast Guard on cutters. I don't know how this is about how landing units work. I didn't. Um, I wasn't stationed on land units. So I can't say. But on cutters, we have a pretty good um, allowance of money they give every like term. So in the beginning, you're eating pretty good. Like we could do things like paella. We could do different dishes like jambalaya and gumbos. And really, and we had guys that really knew what they were doing. Like one of my guys, Borja, was Chamoran, and so he taught me everything about like katsus and masubis and different fried rice dishes. And then I had my buddy Ozzy, who was, you know, he's Cajun. He's from New Orleans. So he taught me how to make etouffee and all the different Romulan sauces. And so you and I mean, being a Cali kid, I, I brought, you know, all my Mexican surfer kind of style of food. So, and then we had a guy from Texas and he taught me everything about barbecue and, and how to do all these weird sauces with like real like redneck kind of like Alabama root beer, Dr. Pepper barbecue sauces. It's just like ridiculous. I hated them, wow. but like but I, you learn these <laughs> things from people's backgrounds. So we could make a lot of really great stuff on whether it was we were running out of food and we were running out of money. And it was the end of the allotment or in the or at the end, maybe we had extra and we could do things with like Kobe beef and, and Dungeness crab and or wow. we could do like po'boys with like blue shell crab like dishes. It was, it was we could, we did what we had to do, but you can, in this case, you really can polish a turd, man. You can do a lot with mm-hmm. rice and beans. Not yeah. that that's what we were eating. How many people are on a cutter? 175. Okay. That's so me. how did you guys – what's the culture like for the cooks to interact with the rest of the cutter? Like are you guys – do you guys have fuck you jobs where basically it's like, hey, you going to come back here and cook? No, then leave me the fuck alone. Let me do my thing. Or was it you really had to still be – fallen in and you were expected to do x y and z and you're getting treated just like everybody else both and nothing at all at the same time um like i was part of the fire team i was part of the gun team um you as a cook can be part of the boarding team just they kind of like kind of like sway you away from that because just the hours you're already working it's not going to be good and it's like they also don't really trust you as a cook to be able to handle that kind of a thing you know Mm. Not that you can't do it. I've, I've heard of FS is doing it. But so you really don't feel like a part of the crew at all, at, at all, really, because you're kind of revered as being the cook, as one of having the worst jobs on ship. But at the same time, it's like you're only good as your best meal and you're only good as your last meal as well at the same time. So like, you know, you do amazing stuff Friday through Sunday and the whole crew's static on this guy. But then Monday you're burnt out and you cook like shit. Now everybody hates your guts. Oh, interesting. You know? Yeah. Interesting. Wow. And are you guys in uniform? You're wearing like oh, yeah. cook aprons the whole time, right? No, or- no, 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 no. We're oh, in really? Yoda use okay. like everybody else. I mean, okay. yeah, there is like, there's a specialized like cook uniform you can wear, but that's just kind of a crap ton more laundry that you have to do on a daily basis. So maybe when you're in, uh, you know, in port, you know, on when we're stationed for like, you know, three months at port, maybe you bring out your chef whites and all that, you know, we had like the blue chef whites and we would have the checkered pants. But maybe you do that then. But for most of the guys, whether it's our people, we just wore our ODUs, you know, okay. right. just less work you have to do. Sure. Sure. What are the, I mean, I can imagine the challenges of cooking on a cutter because it's not a stable platform. Right? No, it's I a mean, circus. <laughs> yeah. So what, what, what is that? I mean, did you guys hit swells and suddenly you're like, yeah, like, soup is all over me now. Like, well, it's like this. So, um, like, let's say you're a bosun's mate, right? And the swell is absolutely insane. They will sometimes 
take down the amount of people that need to be up there just because how bad it is, right? But mm-hmm. typically, I always have the people on deck because you have to steer the ship. You have to make sure everything goes smooth. But so literally, the only people that are screwed and have to do their jobs when the swells are terrible are like bosun mates and cooks. The only people. Everyone else can get refined so they, they're birthing and kind of just weighed out and you know deal with it because everyone's puking their guts out. But so you'll be having them, and it's like not like the menu gets parred down all the time. It's you're doing a full on menu while everything's happening. So let's say you're like making roasted chicken, right? The chicken's going to steam up. All that oil is going to be coming out. And so when the the entire oven shifts, right? Not that the oven's flying or something like that. It's obviously set up to the bulkhead, but all that grease is now flying all over the floor and the ovens are cracking open and everything's flying everywhere. So you're essentially cooking in a circus. You're literally getting wow. used to cutting onions and sliding five feet over or the Cambros are flying across the side of the room. And maybe you're making scrambled eggs and you just broke 300 eggs and then you hit a giant swell and boom, that 300 thing of Cambro just flies across the room, smashes against the wall and now you got to start over again. That's kind of the norm. It's a fucked up situation. That is a fucked up. No, no, listen, that is a fucked up situation. I I mean, that seems like that would lead to an unstable mental health space, right? If you're working long hours and then all your work keeps getting fucked with because of mother nature and the situation, right? So what did you find were the coping mechanisms and what did you, because I could see it where either like you come out of the coast guard and you're fucking world-class chef because you've dealt with so much adversity as a chef that by the time you go into the civilian world, you're like, I can do fucking whatever. Cause nobody's fucking with me or it can just burn you out, blow you up and make you lose your mind. It made me, um, it did what normally takes. I found 10 or 15 years to realize typically, you know, like you become 30 before you realize man, you're working a shit job and you hate it and you change. I did that in two years. <laughs> in yeah. two years, I realized I, I finally cut the bullshit and I was like, hey, you've been lying to yourself for like five years. Yes, you love cooking. Yes, this is something that is a passion for you, but you wanted to be in music. You wanted to write books. You wanted to be an actor mm-hmm. and you just settled. So you can either face that or you can get screwed and you can just stick to this plan that we both know doesn't work for you. Okay. So. Got you. And and two years in, um, it hit me. And I'm like, oh, crap. My 10-year plan is over. And I I don't want to do it. And and not like I don't want to do it like I'm having a hard time. Like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm like, there's no way I can do this. Like, I I wanted to be an adventurer. I wanted to have a big life. I can't live and die in a kitchen, you know? I just can't do that. That's a tough time to make that realization. Yeah. You're halfway through the sentence. You're you're halfway through. Fuck. That's a rough time to do that. So how did that start to play out for you? It, how did honestly, you cope? It, I mean, you'll get it. It's um, once you open up to your dreams and your realities, the world kind of speaks to you. So I don't know how it happened, um, but within about two months, there was this ET3. I don't remember his name. Real, real nice guy. And he was always talking about books. He was always talking about real literary writers like Hemingway, um, Jack Kerouac, and Bukowski, right? And he told, and we were always talking about that. And one day he's like, you should really read this book. It's called Hot Water Music. And I'm like, all right. And he just gives me, a, it's a, a book of short stories by Hot, of our Charles Bukowski. And, and I read it cover to cover and it hits me like a lightning bolt. I'm like, oh crap. Like, 
this guy's just writing about, you know, the things that we do. Like, but my life's crazier than this guy's. And yeah. if you guys know anything about, anything about Bukowski, Bukowski was a freaking like madman, you know, like absolute, like horrible human being. But at the same time, there's this core that is this sad, scared, traumatized child that he can't just let out. And that's the artist in him. And I saw that. I saw that he was just this broken little boy. And so it hit me. I'm like, wait a minute. I can do this. Like I've had a pretty crazy childhood up to this point and I've gone through some amazing and insane things here in the military. I should do this. And there were some things in, in my life and my relationships that were happening that were causing me to use this as an outlet. And I started writing these horrible, you know, pretentious short stories. Yeah. And it was my outlet. And I was like, wow. So every Sunday I would, I would take two hours in the back of the fantail and I would create an idea for a short story. And then I would just binge write all day long, 13 pages. And it was the most amazing euphoric feeling I've ever had in my life. It was like, it was like talking to God. It really was. What were you writing about? What did you find yourself drawn to write about? So my first short story was called The Death of Chivalry. Um, we were in San Francisco and obviously I loved North Beach because I'm, you know, a Ginsburg guy. So I'm hanging out in North Beach where all the beat poets are. And that's the red light district for those that don't know. So you're around a lot of prostitutes, a lot of strip clubs. And I don't know why, but it's just such a romantic idea about like this old school trope of a sailor falling in love with a prostitute. And I'm just like, how cool would that be if maybe the prostitute and him don't actually end up having sex? He's on a bender. He's kind of strung out. He's doing cocaine. But the thing is that we're not really looking for sex as people in the military. What we really need and want is intimacy. That's why we get married so young is because we want intimacy. You want someone that understands us and loves us. So I'm like, what if he meets this woman and he pays her, but they don't have sex. He just ends up kind of holding her the entire night and talking with her and, and smoking and drinking with her. And, and it's about just having a conversation with somebody and feeling normal for a second. And so I wrote that story and that was, it was just beyond exciting, man. It was stoked. Did you find that your writing was catharsis or did you find it was imaginary? Like if I could, I would like, what did you, what themes did you find yourself being drawn to or did, or was there any consistency? There was a lot of consistency in some areas um, in that. My first two years, I had a very hard time in the military. I was like I, we already talked about. It wasn't really something I was ready for, even emotionally. I didn't have a lot of the tools and confidence and self esteem that you need in order to deal with these kind of situations. You know, the trials and tribulations. So emotionally and spiritually, I faltered and I got really dark. And for the first two years, I was seriously. Um, I never planned it, but I was seriously contemplating suicide. So. Those two years were all about wanting intimacy and um, wanting a connection because I didn't, I couldn't make friends with anybody on ship. I literally only had one buddy who I still talk to this day, and he, his friendship literally saved my life. So it was about brotherhood. It was about intimacy with women. It was about adventures and leading a different life. Um, and it was about the the call to the journey. It was always these big storylines or or they were stories about being self-destructive and drugs and mm -hmm. searching for a deeper meaning in yourself how did that translate when you guys had port calls or when you actually got to land and i'm saying that because i think one of the big 
aspects of military life that a lot of civilians sometimes don't twig to is the repression is that and and i think repression is the flip side of discipline they both have value because you can't walk around as a bunch of loose nerve endings but Mm -hmm. when you hit port and when you do have that moment to blow off steam you kind of really need to let it out yeah but now as a writer now that you're certainly starting to write and process your thoughts and emotions and all that. Did you want to go out and see more or did you want to take time and go through all the stuff in your head? What was more important to you? Where did you find yourself doing? Was it the wanderlust or was it the sitting down and starting to mine the emotions and the experiences you'd had? It was a bit of both. Um, It was the wanderlust. I would go on four day long kind of, you know, benders as you do when you're in port, but I wouldn't do it like other people would do. I wouldn't, you know, hang out in strip clubs or any kind of stuff that was never really me. It was, I would, we would find this insane hotel that looked like, like a, a hotel in some kind of a border town in Mexico with the, mm-hmm. with the, with the, with the pool on top and the, in the sign that says El Toro hotels in the very top with red neon writing and, it felt like you were, you know, running away from the law. And it was, and then mm-hmm. we would, and then we would like run away from where everybody else was hanging out. And we go to like, when we were in Costa Rica, we go to Juan Chaco beach which was like the second best surf spot, you know, for the um, Central America, you know, ever the, one of the best lefts. And so sure we would drink, sure. We would blow off steam in that kind of a way, but me and my buddy, Chris, we would try to get away from everybody and go do our own thing and basically kind of have like mini vacations really. Yeah. Like, you know, we go to Panama and then we go to Rojas Beach and then we go surf for four days. Or we sometimes we'd get into all the mix of everybody else and just go wild and have fun and go dancing and all that. But it wasn't it wasn't some kind of extreme where we would just sit in a bar all day long and just get pissed. That wasn't what we were after. We wanted to see the world. And we and we also knew the rule that the more coasties or more navy guys that are in one group, right. Right. the more likely we are to get masted and get in yeah. trouble. Yeah, sure. Be stupid. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. But I would be writing the whole time while I would do that. I'd be journaling in this all or creating short stories and poems, and I'd just be writing constantly. Were you worried about people seeing that you were writing? Is it something you hid? Was it something you didn't mind if people were aware of? How did you feel about it? I hid it at first. It was like my private time. But as I started getting really excited about it, I started sharing it with some people, you know? And I would talk to different people about stories. I don't know why. I just I could ping who I could talk with about this, who was mm-hmm. kind of artistically minded. And even the guys that weren't, like they would be like kind of taken aback. Like I'd be writing some kind of really over-the-top, like Hunter Thompson kind of story about doing acid and and like staring at yourself in the mirror and all these kind of weird, like trippy, really pretentious stories. And they'd be taken aback like Pettigrew's writing this like that's that's awesome or I'd write poems and I'd read them to guys in the birthing area and they'd be taken aback like it, it kind of it weirdly enough gave them some sort of respect for me oh that's uh, interesting yeah oh. um I imagine it wasn't a difficult decision to get out of the Coast Guard for any number of reasons not the least of which that you'd spent half your time waiting to get out but yeah what what was it like um yeah, what was it? What was that decision like? Was there fear in getting out? Was there worry? Was there a sense that, um, you know, the unknown, or were you just anxious and teeth on edge, ready to get the fuck out? 
I was absolutely ready. Um, I wasn't like a lot of guys who don't plan it. I had saved up every penny for two years. Literally, as soon as I realized that, okay, this isn't going to work, I started writing and I realized that and I found out about this guy named Nomadic Matt who basically travels all over the world and he's a travel blogger and he helps people get around the world um, as cheap as possible. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to do this. So I'm going to create my own website and I'm going to travel the world and I'm going to go for five years. Basically, my intention was to be like have my own website and just be a travel blogger and take care of myself financially through that and just never come home. So I plotted a five-year journey, which is the original uh, thing. And I saved up $36,000. Wow. And I figured out how to do it through workaways um, where you basically just work for free on someone's land or a hostel and you get paid nothing but room and board. So yep. I just figured out how to do it. And so when I left, I was absolutely ready. I had my entire trip planned out. I was going to do a two-month a trip all over the country on my motorcycle, and then I was going to get gone and go travel for five years. So at this point, when you've got it mapped out, is there a sense that the Coast Guard, do you regret at that point, do you regret your time in the Coast Guard? Or because it seems like you still are desperate for adventure and the Coast Guard didn't give it to you. It is that did. right? It did and it didn't. Um, you know, it's it's a these are all very gray areas because I loved my time in it. I gained a lot from it. It's kind of like level five fun, you know. You get the crap kicked out of you. You're scared shitless. You change drastically. You grow drastically. But while you're in it, you're like, I fucking yeah. hate my life. Yeah, that's what it was. Which I mean, I don't know. You tell me. How does it strike you? To me, it's it seems like. It's something any guy needs. You uh -huh. need those moments, right? And you need to go through them because otherwise I, I feel like it it does kind of take the edge of the immaturity off, especially yeah. the guy, I feel like. Is that how it struck you? Were you like, I'm better for having gone through this? Absolutely. It just came yeah. to a point where I'm like, okay, well, are you going to get over your childish crap and work through this and go after what you really want and what you're yeah. – I mean – what it really was for me, and this is going to be very dark, but it's like when I went through my blue two years and when I lost my friend, I was like, okay, not everyone's going to make it. I just as easily could have been him. I need to make a decision to actually live my life here. Otherwise, I could have been him and I could become him and I don't want to do that. So, and I realized that there was, that this is kind of hell. Yeah. That that was that that was the that's the I think the the moment that I changed and I grew up was I realized that I'm not here because I signed a contract. I'm not unhappy or depressed or suicidal because I made some bad decisions. I'm here. I'm living this life and I'm this unhappy. I'm not like everyone else. There were guys that were happy in the military. They they grew. They they fucking blossomed, man. They became who they were supposed to be and I'm here. Because I took no responsibility in my life at all. I was just self-destructing. And now I'm here in this position and you better think your way out of it, buddy. You got to get, you got to go with the program. So it's like, okay, so if this isn't me, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give it everything all the time. And I have to go that way. If I'm going to go after what I'm in love with and what I want in my life, I have to be a hundred percent. I can't be 
um, listening to everybody else or taking anyone else's advice. I have to hear what's in my heart and I have to gun for it. So at that point, when you're getting out, that looks like becoming this de facto travel blogger and going around the world doing mm-hmm. that, right? Yeah. How'd that work out for you? Well, it vastly changed. Um, when unfortunately, I had ha- um, half my money stolen from me. So the trip went from a five-year journey to a year and a half. With the motorcycling, it was two years, but a year, only a year and a half of traveling. How was your money stolen? My old man. Wow. Sure enough. Yeah. We've had a, an estranged relationship and I was trying to help him out because he had some financial issues. So I gave him a bunch of my money that I had that I didn't, that I could not lose. Um, and he didn't pay me back. So, yeah. I can imagine what that did to the relationship, but what oh, yeah. did it do to your, to your plans then? So if you now are suddenly on a year and a half plan, did it you change know, what you could do? Did it change what the, the grandness of your vision? Yeah, but as you travel more and more, you find out it's actually better to go deeper than it is to go broader. Um, I was going to spend like three or six months in here and there and there. Mm-hmm. So it meant, okay, you're just going to do the UK and Western and Southern Europe, essentially, and a little bit of Northern Europe, if you count um, the Netherlands. So that's what you're going to gun for. And that's what I did. So I just planned the trip around that. I just cut out a bunch of it. I just cut out like Russia and Africa and Asia, you know, and Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just changed it. Is all. So it's funny because I know there's now been multiple books written about the Camino de Santiago and the value of it. Did you actually mm-hmm. do it? Yeah. Yeah. Tattoos and all. Yep. Okay. Uh, I get, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to be coy about this because I want to talk about the book as a separate entity, but You're good how was it for you? How was it? How was the, oh, it was everything I needed. Um, it, it was a mirror to everything I was doing wrong. And I didn't even realize half of the gravity of what I was, um, going through until years later. I'm like, Oh, you fucker. It still pings me sometimes. And I'm like, Oh, damn it. I see what I was doing. And it's, it's, it's so, um, it's such a funny thing, you know, it's a really, really amazing thing. Uh, for those that don't know about the community of Santiago, can you tell, uh, tell folks what is special about it? What makes it more than just, well, why couldn't it have just been the App- Appalachian trail? What, yeah, what's I mean, so special about it? I mean, that is the exact same thing. Our Appalachian trail, our PCT, our CDT, and for us in America, it's the exact same thing. It doesn't have as much rich history, mind you. Well, it kind of does. I mean, if you want to talk about Teddy Roosevelt, John Muir, Emerson, Thoreau, all those guys, it's, it's very special. But it just, it has more, it's shorter, which is more attainable for a lot of people. It's not as aggressive. It's not as long. But it is, it's about the spirituality with which you walk. Everybody is there for a spiritual reason. Even if mm-hmm. you just want to hike and you think you're just there to hike, no, you're not. You're figuring something out. It's a long walk with yourself, with your soul, and figuring out what's going on inside of you. So that's, that's the, I was talking to a buddy uh, that I met actually on the Appalachian Trail just maybe a month ago. And he was talking about, it. he's like, it's kind of a fucked up thing. If you think about it through hiking, you're going to leave your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, yeah, yeah. everyone and everyone, every, your entire life behind for an intermediate random amount of time because you're fucked up mentally. And that's what you're going to do. 
instead of growing your life, you're away from your life. Yeah. So it's something that um, I think everybody needs to do in their life. It's, it's the walkabout that I think everybody needs to do in order to grow and become who they really are or just get past their own crap. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but did you run with the Bulls in Pamplona? Oh, God, yeah. I, I was originally going to do it six times in a row in six different days. How I, many did you do? I only did one because I woke up the second morning and I could just, there was something in the air. I woke up and I'm like, Regan, don't fucking do it. Like, don't. <laughs> and I was right because um, the Bulls got turned around that day. My buddy Arlen did it instead that day. And he, and the Bulls got turned around. So they ran headlong into all the people. And unfortunately, um, an older woman got clipped um, and she passed. So it was wow. like really. Yeah, it was it was a really bloody day that day. I just I don't know. I had an idea that how cool of a short story would it be if I if you write about a guy who runs with the Bulls six times in a row and he's basically playing a version of Russian roulette, you know? How great would that be? Gotcha. And I'm like and I woke up the second morning, I'm like, Regan, no, don't do it, dude. It's not you don't need to do this. You already don't need to do this. So at this point, you've you've obviously gone way into your writing and you're yeah. a student of the craft. Did you look at like people like George Orwell, um, Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Joseph Conrad, people like that, that had lived like some of the great literary Titans that actively sought adventure as a fuel to their oh, writing. Yeah. Were they inspirational? Were those oh, kind of God, people inspirational yeah. to you? Man, I'm an Indiana Jones kid through and through. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. That was the stuff. My so, old man did that to me, but go ahead. Oh, really? Oh, no, no, yeah. no. That, no, that's great. I mean, so when you, when the year and a half was up, did you know what your next step was going to be? Yeah. Um, I kind of pivoted. I pivot quite well. I don't think I do, but I sometimes do, I guess. Um, when I knew it wasn't going to be a five-year journey anymore, I'm like, you know what? If I'm really serious about this, I'm going to also look at schools. Because I originally was thinking, okay, I'm going to be gone for five years. I don't need to. But then when the, that changed and I could tell, I'm like, I, I feel like I should check out some schools too. Like I'm really serious about this. So I, um, the journey that I did on my motorcycle, the triangle, it's not in the book, but it, it used to be in the original drafts. Um, this one. Hmm. Um, I went to, what was it called? Naropa. I went to Naropa University in um, Boulder, Colorado. And so I was like, I'm like, cause it's, it's, um, it's a Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg school. Hence why, you know, and that's an old school hobo mm-hmm. town, um, Colorado. So I wanted to check out all these different schools, whether it be Juilliard, Columbia, Brown, um, USC, and I wanted to go to school for it and, and really study it, really get deep in. Cause I, I was serious about it. I wanted to make a living at this as a man of letters. And so I wanted to figure out how do you go about doing that? Okay. Well, you need to, just put time into it. You got to, you got to put your hours into the craft, you know? I'm only saying this because you call yourself a man of letters. Are you a throwback? Are, what you, way? Are, you, are you a man of this time? Or do you often think, eh, you know, I really would have been the 1950s with the beatniks. Like there there's, or there's something, there's something classically romantic about your vision. Is, is that, fair, is that fair? Yeah. Or do you feel like, <laughs> I'm pretty old school. I'm pretty yeah. traditional. Cause I'm not, I'm not getting like the Gen Z, Hey, I'm in 2023 vibe. I'm getting a different no. vibe, but I don't know. No. if that's, hey, I don't know. No, if it's a hundred percent. Um, my old man, my grandfather, 
um, who I dedicated the book to, was a Jewish guy from Harlem, New York. And he was the only Jewish kid there. And he raised me, you know. And so you have this, like, old school 1920s, like, grandfather, you know, super Jewish, you know, family coming over with his Canadian wife over to California, self-made man who's a Stoic. Like, he studied the Stoics, whether it's Marcus Aurelius, Plato, Socrates, and I didn't even know he was into those guys, but he would be teaching me this kind of lifestyle and teach me about Frank Sinatra and, you know, and Armstrong and the Rat Pack. And so I just, I grew up with these things instilled in me. It seems like you have a deep love of characters. Yeah. And I say that because the book is, it's a rich book, episodically, mm-hmm. going from from one setting to another, like initially and I was like, okay, got it. I don't know about Coast Guard life, but I'm hearing about it. And and you're there with with Jacob. And, you know, got it. But the way that the book moves, I mean, it's travelogue. It's, so you're getting a sense of these different parts of the world, mm-hmm. but also the characters that you're meeting along the way. Um, I thought it were really interesting, three-dimensional characters. I thought you did an exceptional job with the mm-hmm. characters. Um, I really did. And the one that stood out to me the most, and I, this might be more a comment on me than you, but I loved the father as a character because I was yeah, like, buddy. what a fucking character. And I loved that he was rich. <laughs> I loved that he had this accent that he was trying out and that he made this, they had made this money and been this wildly successful guy because it was such a non Bukowski choice. It wasn't, Hey, my dad is a low life almost like Dustin Hoffman in Midnight Cowboy. He's not Ratso Rizzo. (laughs) He's instead like at the other end of the scale. It was such an interesting novel choice and what a great character. So I have to ask with all the characters that you came up with, how much time did you have to spend developing the characters? How much of them were you able to go? Yeah, I I can, I can pluck these pretty easily. Oh buddy. I, I worked on this thing for six years. Um, the the last two drafts um, I had been the last two drafts of what now all the everybody else has now um, was the past nine months. So I've been like brewing these people and creating these amalgamations for a very long time, just brewing yeah. them down. Um, and his old man is um, he's a really strange guy because he's kind of this professor of life and you would think he'd be so much more understanding but because he's lived so much and because he's gotten to such a high level in his own existence he thinks that he knows more than everybody but the 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 funny thing about this is though and this is the question that i always wanted to i want it to point at with the mom and the dad yes you may think that they're assholes you may think that they're not good people but the reality is they're just trying to save their son yeah that's the thing Yes, they are well-to-do snooty people, but they're also like, they're just a loving parents that can't reach their child. That, and I'm glad you said that because yeah, that was definitely something I took away as I was like, huh, it, there's no real bad guys here. And that's why, I mean, they're fully three-dimensional characters. There's, they're not archetypes and they're not stereotypes. Um, they're interesting people and their motives, I think, I think that does come through. What did you think about um, your protagonist? My protagonist was originally crafted after me. Um, 
all my short stories were originally crafted after this um mm, all my short stories and all my um, pieces that I originally wrote were crafted after the son that I almost had when I was in the military. It was how I dealt with um, the idea of being a father and finding I'm not going to be a dad and that relationship imploding. So everything was Tristan, 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 you know, and I wrote short stories because I wanted to be this, um, I wanted to be all the good and the best very parts of myself and all the very worst parts of myself, the extremes the essence of me in this person, like you do your own child, I suppose. And so I crafted that into this character. And I just kind of lived through this idea of myself while I was traveling and just started crafting all these little things. And, and that was how it started. I want to, I want to pinpoint that that's how it started, mm-hmm. but crafting Tristan as a character was a lot easier because the further I got away, the more perspective I got, the more work I did on myself, the more experiences mm-hmm. I had, I was able to have perspective and actually create a character as opposed to just doing a caricature of myself. So he had to be emotional. He had to be possibly suicidal. He had to be looking for a father figure that for some reason he didn't get with his actual dad. He had to be incredibly um, passionate about his life. But at the same time, he has this little thing about himself that feels broken and doesn't feel like he measures up. And I think that's the thing that Tristan has with his parents is they have this grand life. But instead of going after this grand life, he turns to punk rock and he turns to all these people that maybe aren't in his same financial wheelhouse Mm. as a childhood that he grows up with. So you have this person who finds this new father figure in Jacob and he kind of latches on to the, and even though his father knows all these things, he has these knowledge, right? His mom is this loving person. His girlfriend is this incredible woman who he actually truly does love, but he's not able to accept himself. Yeah. So you have, that's what it's all about. It's, it's about that. You're not able to accept love essentially is what Tristan's biggest issue is. What did that, was that a conclusion you could have reached had you written it in non as nonfiction? Oh, did you God. need the distance from the protagonist to be able to see that? And see I always stories? wanted it to be an epic. The book was always meant to be mm-hmm. fictional. Um, it's just the first two drafts were nonfiction because they were based off of the the travelogue that I did. Mm-hmm. You know, so I maybe could have, um, but I don't think so. At the same time, I think I was way too close. It was too raw, all the things mm-hmm. I had experienced in the military for me to just be like, okay, this is what it is. Like, no, it's like uh, it allowed me to get perspective and step away from my experiences and say, okay, this is why I felt this way. This is what I had been through. And this is how I feel now about it. And it allowed me to just write him as a character. This is what it is. And get away from it. Do you still see yourself in, in the, the book or do you are you able to now see Tristan as Tristan and go, yep. That's there's there's some distance, and I'm not. No, I can yeah. Aligned. Okay, and that's um, really cool to say. <laughs> yeah, no, I bet it is. I bet it is. Would you ever write nonfiction, or do you think it's always going to be fiction for you? Um, I could. Um, I just love, I love fiction. I know that's not where the world is going anymore. Um, I just don't really care. I the the stories I want to write are the stories that I want to write. I've already got the next four books figured out. I just, 
I just want to write fictional books. I want to write like, um, like the Jackie Brown kind of style stuff. I want to write, you know, my own versions of Count of Monte Cristo, Don Quixote, a Captain Blood. You know, I don't want to write nonfiction. No offense to the nonfiction writers that are out there. It's just, this isn't really a story, guys. You're just telling me your life experiences. Not that that's not cool. Like I read Matt Best's book. His, it's fantastic. The story is amazing. You know, the life he's lived. But I think... Fiction is how you can take philosophy and metaphor and allegory and take it into a story and take your experience. Like how short stories work is maybe you have an idea, you start crafting that idea, you're writing the idea, and before you know it, the metaphor that is your life, your experiences, it kind of ekes in to the actual story. You don't realize what you're writing about and then it hits you like, oh crap, I'm writing about this experience, you know? And then that's, that's the really good stuff. It's remarkable. So first off, yeah, you're clearly not of this era. Uh, yeah. That that I, I don't know anyone that says that anymore. And I love that you did because I I agree with you. Um, I think it's such an underutilized medium. Well, it's if I may, so powerful. Go, yeah. Think about No Country for Old Men, Cormac McCarthy, right? Mm. That scene that we all love with Chigurh in the grocery in the uh, the gas station, right? He forces the guy to flip a coin. The whole time. That scene is the perfect idea of allegory. We're talking about life. We're talking about death. We're talking about um, success and ambition and realizing that we are all gambling with our lives by working these shitty jobs. We marry, he marries, the guy marries into the gas station. Yeah. And he doesn't realize that he's wasting his life by doing that. He has no idea. So he forces him to flip the coin because he's like, you've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. And that's what I mean. That's what these really great scenes and dialogue can do is we're asking the big questions, you know. And like in the book, it's about the self-repression and the self-destruction in the military. It's about the second act is about the, um, the Chinese philosophy about peacocks and that we have to take in our poison and self-destruct to recognize who we really are. And by more taking more of that poison, those harsh truths, we become more beautiful. And the third is about recognizing the false self in ourselves and letting go of that person and killing it if you need to. Mm. So that's mm-hmm. that's what mm-hmm. these things are about. But that's the allegory that you miss with nonfiction. We, it's it's you know what it is. It, it's spoon fed. You know, yeah. it's hey, you know, um, like a really great thing that Goggins talks about, right? Burning the ships, putting mm-hmm. yourself against a wall so you can move forward and recognizing that no one's going to save you. It's just you. That's great. But Epicurean would talk about it like. Okay, recognizing that death comes to us all and not being scared of death, but by walking into it anyway, like it's a friend. And, and when you feel that fear of death, recognizing that's life pointing at you to do what you must do, your calling. So that's how those two, you know, if you, I mean, you could call Goggins a philosopher in his own kind of right. Well, no, I think you're right. And I think what's remarkable about what you've done is I think so many guys, when they get out, they need to clear the carbon out of the barrel. They need mm-hmm. to go, okay, hey, I've got the, a bunch of ideas yeah. in my head, and it's often going to take the form of nonfiction because it, it's a straight flash to bang. It's just a very quick turnaround. Absolutely. It's the easiest way to, uh, to process it. And then you hope that that primes the pump for what's to come next because life's going to keep going on. And unless you want to keep writing nonfiction, you're probably going to have to start manufacturing something and trying to find a way to bring whatever it is you want to say into another medium. But what you've done by by kind of diving into fiction right off the bat, 
I mean, it wasn't it wasn't really a dive. I mean, it was a six year process, right? So I mean, yeah. there was a lot that you had to work through, and moving it from a nonfiction draft to a fiction draft mm-hmm. is a big transition. But it was always conscious, right? You always knew always. you wanted to be fictional. Always. I mean, this is going to be a kind of a shot, um, but it's no different than a lot of the the greats, so to speak, did. Hunter Thompson's Fear and Loathing was after an article that he wrote for Rolling Stones, and he came back with this ginormous journal of this drug stuff. You know, um, Ernest Hemingway's Feral to Arms was a recreation of when he got blown up, Um what is it? Uh, this side of paradise was about when, you know, Scott Fitzgerald trying to, you know, woo and seduce, you know, um, Zelda. Yeah. Uh, sure. you, you keep going on and on. These guys are just writing about their own lives, but they yeah. kind of take out their names on the road is Jack Kerouac being Jack Kerouac, you know? Right. Right. Or like we said, I mean, Joseph Conrad. Paradise. Like, yeah. On, I mean, all, all of those guys were all writing extrapolations of their own you're, experience. You're writing about your life. I will. Yeah. This is getting, this is what I mean by when I was saying it's a shot. It's not real writing. Like Hemingway, the only real, real fiction he really did was Old Man in the Sea. His short stories were short stories. Those were fiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like Old Man in the Sea was his proper fiction. That's why it was so good. You know, like Jim Harrison didn't write about his life. He wrote about, you know, fiction, stories. He created actual stories. Kerouac's writing about his life like the whole time. He's just yeah. recreating Thomas Wolfe into this. Talk a little bit about your own writing journey then. When you came mm-hmm. back and you were now starting to study. Yeah. What had to get corrected in your technique, in how you were mm. approaching your subject matter? What was the process like for you? Um, well, because I literally basically took a master course in the military of Bukowski and Hemingway and Kerouac. Those are my main three. Mm. Everything came off like that. Um, mm-hmm. What I mean by that is I mean that I would constantly do these free, vor- free verse kind of style of writing where my lines would be like paragraphs long. And it would be so metaphorical into the emotions and the feelings as you're writing that you don't recognize, okay, you can do that in songs. You can like, let's say, um, like there's a great song by this, uh, these, like this hardcore band out in the UK where they say we're going to stomp our feet so the devil can hear us. Right. So that's a really great metaphorical idea. But what the hell does that mean in a fictional book? How, what, what, unless you have a character saying that to another character, it, uh, that, these emotional things don't work in um, in verse, in prose. So what you have to do, and I figured that out, is, okay, these really emotional, really poignant things you want to say and critiques you want to say, you have to f- create characters to say them. You can't just say lines in this really manic kind of form and think, okay, yeah, people are going to get it. And sure, it's poignant. Sure, it's cool. And it's a hook, lava lime. But... No one knows what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, right, right. So right. you have to find a way to create characters that do that. And that's, that's the really cool trick is when you can create villains that think in a way that you want to use in order to use the allegory and the metaphors that you want to write about. That's the trick is finding out how to, way to take that, that, the poetry you want to say and put it into people. And that's where you figure it out. Besides that, and that that's a big one. I can see a lot of people struggling with that. That seems like a very real mountain to climb. Mm-hmm. What did you find you had to clean up? Was it? Did you have an ear for dialogue right off the bat? Did you have an eye for character right off the bat? Was mm-hmm. plot hard for you? Like, what were things that you had to, that you struggled to overcome? Plotting because I didn't. Um, there are two types of writers. I'm not 
One is that you pre-plot everything. The other one is you write everything and then you go back and replot and reassess. And I was definitely the former of that. So I was really excited by trying it that way. But I need to clean up the dialogue, um, not make it so wordy. Just say what you're trying to say. I had to obviously get the prose down because I was writing these giant Jack Kerouac lines. And it's like, okay, that's what Kerouac does. Don't do what Kerouac does. Do what you're trying to do, you know, and figure out more of your style, more, go deeper than what you've already done. And then you, and then find writers that just kind of show the stories that get you revving. So I found out about like people like Camus or I found out about Harrison. And then it was like, okay, this is the real uh, vibe and aesthetic that I'm trying to create is this, very numb, very dark humor-esque kind of writing style. And then I was like, okay, now I know how to plot. Now I know how to do verses. And now you just kind of let it go and see what comes of it. Are you neurotic about your writing? Do you worry about people? Well, do you worry about people reading it? Do you get, are you the kind of writer that's like, ah, God, people are going to read this and it's going to, I'm worried about how it's going to reflect on me or what they're going to think of it. It seems like you're very confident in what choices you make. You don't strike me as the kind of person that's really too nervous about how people are going to interpret your work. But am I right or am I off on that? Gray area again on me. Sorry. Um, no, it's all right. It's a bit of both. Um, I'm neurotic in that I I don't want to exactly show everything right off the back. But then I will go and write short stories where I'll write the first draft of it. And then I'll be like, dude, check this out, check this out, check this out. And I'll read it. Mm-hmm. And I suppose um, how I'm, I'm very confident in showing it. I'm very confident in the meanings that I'm trying to portray. But I would say I'm neurotic in that showing this story has been a little harder to explain to people because those that know me, those that are my family and friends who've been in with me for the past six years, they know what this journey has meant to me, right? They know what I've gone through. What I'm scared of or insecure about is discussing the fact that, okay, you were suicidal in the military, discussing the fact that you wrote this book after one of your friends committed suicide. And then, and then you created this fictional book, but you didn't understand how you were making these choices they just kind of happened to you you know just it kind of happened through you like i didn't originally understand that okay how the character of tristan in order for you as a reader to make sense he needs to be suicidal and i didn't understand that was obvious i wrote the beginning like 12 times the first 25 pages like 12 times i couldn't figure it out and i didn't get that and then i didn't understand how to kill jacob how do you make this man who's made after the stoics to kill himself. And I'm like, Oh, okay. He needs to be an AA member. He needs to be a stoic and he needs to be a man of God. He needs to be in the program. And then I was talking to a buddy about that and he was like, yeah, it sounds like the story of Job. And then, so we just figured that out that, you know, it's the story of how God made a deal with the devil and basically, um, and the devil said, if I can tempt him, he doesn't really believe in you. So let's switch it on the inverse and let's make it that instead of Job standing true to his belief in God, he, you know, he loses his wife and child. And I haven't, and this is the best part is I don't ever tell you what really happened with his relationship right. with Jacob and Jennifer. Right. And I don't really tell you that this whole thing is about that him, he's losing his wife and he loses his sobriety. And in case he takes the deal from the devil and he loses his soul. So that's just kind of how we figured it out. But I didn't understand as a man that that's what I was doing. 
that's what I was recreating was just basically essentially telling the truth of what I went through, you know? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's a, you, it's a you have no, no, no. A hundred percent. And at what point did you feel like you were first done with it? Did you hit a point where you were like, I think this is it. And then you had to, did you give yourself the time to go back and re-examine it? Like what was the, what was the battle rhythm in terms of just going back, assessing the script, doing further edits on it? Um, well, I believe I did five or six, I believe it was six full redrafts after everything with my editors. So there was never a moment where you're like, you're really, I'm done. It's not like you get up to the top of a mountain. You're like, oh yeah, I feel it. I, I feel done. Like, no, that's, that's not real writing. That's amateur writing. That's, that's your first or second draft. Your real professional draft is when you recognize, like, it's never going to be perfect. You got to let it go. And that's it. It's, you get your plot down as, as tight as you can. You write your characters as tight as you can. You, you introduce them as tight as you can. You, you do everything as well as you possibly can do. And you still know there's going to be somebody who says this, this, and this about the character, the plot, the ending, whatever. You've just got to get to a point where you can accept and move on. Because <clears throat> I did this story because I met a lot of guys who were struggling. And I was struggling in the military. And I had friends that I lost, unfortunately. And I'm like, <clears throat> in a way, I'm kind of doing this for them. And how much of a fucking shame would it be if I just didn't stop writing the story for 10 years? Mm -hmm. So I got to a point mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. I, and, I, and I also didn't do it by myself. I had amazing editors who could get me out of my own head, who were coaches to me, and who could help me along in the right directions. Because if you don't have your team, you're screwed. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it's just you rewriting your drafts forever. And, and if that's it's about yourself, it's going to continuously change. No, that's, that's a great point. Where did you find your publisher? How did you get in touch with your publisher? Oh, there you go. I created my own publishing company, yeah. But you knew you, but you knew you had the team there to back you up, and so you already identified the people that you needed in your circle. Yeah, and I'm still constantly pulling in new people. But it was like, okay, how do I do this? I don't want to wait two years of trying to find an agent and a publisher, <clears throat> and I'm just doing this for myself. And I always kind of wanted my own publishing company to begin with, just because it's like I want to say what I want to say, and I want to find other veterans who are mm -hmm. just as confident and, and who need to say what they need to say however they need to say it. Mm -hmm. And so let's do this. Let's just do your own thing. And it, it got really solidified when I spoke to an editor that I almost went with for the first, um, for my first editor. And she told me, she's like, I wish I did self-publishing. And I'm like, well, you got an agent, you have a publisher and you're telling me, and you know, and yeah. you made 150 grand off your bonus. How am I supposed to even go at that route? If you're telling me that you wish you did what I want to do, you know? Right. right. So, Yeah. No, that's fair. Kind of pivot and go. So I got to ask about, you got four novels <coughs> in the shoot. So, yeah. okay. So where did the, where did, was the germ for these ideas? Are these ideas you've been kicking around for a long time and just waiting to get this book done before yes. you could pivot to them? Okay. Absolutely. How, de how dev out are they? Are the, you have, do you have them plotted or have you? They're all skeleton plots. Okay. All They're right. all skeleton plots that I've written out, or one of them in particular is pretty crazy. It's really risque. Um, I've been working on that since I came here. Um, just something really funny, but it's super dark and, but just 
insane. It's insanity. But it, it's gonna really like people are gonna they're gonna get pissed. It's gonna be wild. Um, what's your rhythm like writing? Do you write every day? Yeah, I'm very very disciplined about it. You are. Oh yeah. It's the only do way you to have, get through it. Do you have a page count? Do you have an hour length or a time hour. length? Hour, One hour, three to four hours. Okay. Yeah. Um, if I'm, if I'm, when I'm in my rhythm, in my rhythm, I do four hours. If I'm just starting out, I do three hours just to start like running. You just, you get farther and farther and farther. And so I always start back up at three hours and I have different things that I do in order to make me, you know, get out of my own head, get out of my own body and just let go. So you put yourself through exercises as kind of an on-ramp to get to yeah, the actual writing? Absolutely. That's fucking great. Wow. Yeah. That's really disciplined. Yeah, you, you got to have it because otherwise it's the most terrifying thing you'll ever do is just sit in front of a blank page and say, okay, how do I feel? What is this character saying? And the most important part is just to throw some spaghetti on the wall. You know? Buck it up. Yeah. Just, like, then we have a thing, you know, you know, because you guys, you guys help vets with acting. Like, how about we just fuck this one up? Let's just do a really, right. really bad, over-the-top scene Let's just have fun, fuck it up, and then get out of our own way and have, and let's get to the work. Yeah. You know? Let's talk about that for a second. So when did you finally embrace your acting? When I got out of the military. Um, I went to Belfast while I was on the trip when I was traveling, and mm -hmm. I was and I saw this theater play, and I was watching it, and I was just staring at this one particular actor who was the narrator in it. He's basically a, a narrator who's narrating a child. And I'm just looking at it. I'm like, this is a fantastic piece. Like this play is just rocking my world. I saw things about my dad in it, about me and about my mom and about my aunts. And I'm just like, God, I got to do this. I got to do it. So when I came home, while I was studying writing in community college at first, I did every play I could get my hands on. Like I just tried out for every play and I did every acting class that was offered. And I was just like, I, ha I have to. And so that's when I got started. What do you like most about acting or what did you like most when you first started? What was the breath of fresh air to actually it's, start studying? It's the same thing. You find deeper, uh, deeper dimensions in yourself, you know, spiritually things that, that you didn't understand about yourself, the discipline of it, of theater acting. Um, film acting is definitely different, but theater acting, it's, it's serious. You need to be off book for an entire play you need to do the work so you understand the emotions so you can get there and have a real emotional life um and I'll, you need to take such good care of yourself when you're doing plays like it, it, it all has to be in order it all has to be done so you can get your ego out of the way and kill that thing and then just be honest in the moment so it was just beautiful it was just it just picked up you know what plays did you find yourself gravitating towards so my first play i ever did was lyle kessler's orphans and I played this kid named Philip. And I remember when Tom, my director, was um, he was when he was trying to cast me as it, I told him he had the wrong guy. And I do this every time with Tom. I was like, you got the wrong guy, man. Because this kid, Philip, is a, a child who believes he's not a child, he's an adult. He's like 18. And he thinks that if he goes outside, that the actual air will kill him. Right? So it's a boy scared to live, essentially, is what it is, right? And I, at first I'm like, hey, I'm not that innocent, man. I have a pretty insane childhood. Like I've had a pretty crazy life. There's not really a lot of innocence in me, man. Like, I don't know what you think you're seeing. He's like, no, 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 no. You're Philip. And this voice started coming out of me. This voice that I use when I speak to my brother, it's almost like childlike. 
like when me and my brother are around, we kind of speak to each other in this soft spoken way, like we're kids again, mm-hmm. you know? And I just started doing that naturally with this character, with this other actor named Luke. And I'm just like, this is kind of pinging something. And, and I'll, I'll tell you this thing, like the play would start where my character is watching TV and I would just have these incredible revelations about my life and who I am and my journey thus far, because the whole piece starts with me watching TV and, and reading these old books. And he reads the same five books every day and he watches the same mm. TV shows every day. He eats the same peanut butter and tuna fish sandwich every day. And I'm like, shit, there are a lot of similarities about this person mm. with me. And I would just, and the play doesn't start until my character stood up. So it was like, it just made me recognize like, like me, until I left the military, my whole life was on hold. I would, I would binge watch like Bike Club like a hundred times a year. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. So this kid's got OCD and it's how he's dealt with his trauma. Yeah. That's what it typically is. It's, so it's like he's, you keep things the same, the same, the same in order for you to kind of have control. So I'm like, that's what's going on with this kid. And I would just, I would have understandings. And I feel like that with every character I do. The characters that scare me that I don't think are in me. And then I realize, no, actually they are. The reason why it scares you is because it is you and you're not and you're scared to face it. So that's how I would philosophically to kind of point that one. How aggressively are you pursuing your acting career? Because now you've got a bunch of things going on between the book, the future mm-hmm. projects, the publishing, and all that. Yeah. Now that the uh, the book is done and I'm doing the events and the and all that going on with the marketing and all that, I'm actually now taking a Terry Knickerbocker workshop with Drama Inc. And then I'm going to do a master Meisner class as well on the side. And I'm just going to do audition because I'm not going to, I'm not going to work on, a, on any book for the next year. I'm going to put that on the side and I'm just going to work on my acting and gun for that. So you're not going to be doing your three, four hours of writing? No, no, no. For the, this whole past three months, I haven't done any of that. I've just been focused on, because it's so it's an extra job. It's like yeah. beyond doing what you do for your day job, you're still working on this and you have to market it and you have to meet people like yourself. Right. And right. so you got to just put on a different hat for a minute. Do you feel like your acting helps you with your writing or is it <laughs> completely relevant? How? Where, where, where's the overlap for you? It's the discipline, the character creations, um, the honesty with yourself, the killing of your ego. These are all things you kind of need to do in order to write honestly about anything. Do you think it helps you with your dialogue at all? I mean, absolutely. I mean, because I I love all the old school writers like the Lyle Kesslers, the August Wilsons, you know, the Mm -hmm. Anton Chekhovs, Tennessee Williams, like, you know, the monoliths of playwriting. So, yeah, you just when you read good stuff, it makes your writing better. Well, and also I think it would help with when you're writing characters the way you've written characters, it helps you get in that headspace where you can capture dialogue maybe a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just wondering, I'm thinking out loud, but I could see that possibly yeah. working. Um, acting is your focus the next year. Where are you based out of now? Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. And there's a huge industry down there, mostly in film, but also a little bit of theater too, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But let's keep that a secret. Obviously, this is going to be out there now, but let's keep it a secret, guys. Don't say nothing. What, yeah. I mean, what's your focus going to be? Is it going to be on theater or film? Or um, I would love I, – I love theater so much more than film, but the people that I want to go up against and have those cage fights with, you know what I mean? Like the, the De Niro's, the Johnny Depp's, the Garrett Headlands. 
I'm just like, God, I want to go up against these guys and learn and study with them. And just like, I would be amazing, you know, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm going to make it happen. But like, could you imagine how great it would be to go up against like a, a guy like a Tom Hardy, who is as yeah. disciplined, as serious as that. And just like go toe to toe with him and just, and try to like go as hard as you possibly can, go as deep as you can to the character and just get, just get even just close to like that level of discipline. That's, that's really special. I'm not saying you could beat him because that guy's got years ahead of me, but man, just to kind of, just to kind of learn because that's what it's all it is. It's, that's why acting is so interesting is because it's community. It's not you. It's a community of you all coming together to create this story. And I think that could be so fun when you learn and train with the, with the right people. Does it also give you a chance to have a lot of different adventures by walking a mile in someone else's shoes? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. It's super right. Cool. It yeah. kind of scratches all those itches, right? It does. Um, it's, it, but it's a totally um, a different thing. Like I didn't even understand why I, um, why I, didn't like LA, but I kind of did at the same time until I did a, a small like indie short film out there. And I'm like, Oh, I could see it. Yeah. I could totally get why people like LA right now because it's like this one of those post-apocalyptic kind of movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking about it and I'm like, this is exactly the kind of, you know, thing you want to do. We're shooting in these dingy no tell motels with this post-apocalyptic era plotline movie and it's really like metaphorical and it's written by this crazy Russian director. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, I could see. And, and we're driving out of you know, the, the, the San Bernardino Hills coming over L.A. and the sun setting. I'm like, I get it now. OK, OK, <laughs> I get it. I get it. Well, it's funny because, I mean, there was that time, you know, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, where so many of the actors had that were becoming stars had lived interesting fucking lives. They weren't, yeah. they weren't, they didn't come up in the Mickey mouse club. They didn't come up like born to do showbiz. And I think having life experience, it makes you a richer actor. Um, yeah. I think that's fucking, I'm excited to see where you go. Yeah, from here, Errol, man. Um, Errol Flynn told it like this. He's like, if you want to be learning how to be an actor, go be a coconut farmer in the Caribbean. Yeah. Cause that's what he did. Like he had this, like yeah. he didn't live. And then he ended up being captain blood and like Spartacus, you know? And, well, so it's, and I've, I've said this before on the show, but, it, but that's like the old Wolfgang Peterson thing when he was talking to film school students. And he said, what you need to do is get out of film school and go be a prison guard for a bit because there you'll capture all – you'll understand the human drama. You'll understand humanity at the extremes. Yeah. Go do that, and then you'll come back. You'll be an infinitely richer director. And um, I get the kernel of truth that is in that. And I think mm-hmm. – uh, yeah, I think that's – it seems like what you're doing. Um, where you can tell everybody where they need to follow you. How they where they can get your book? I mean, kind of everywhere, but you know, any any yeah. of the links you want them to have. How do they need to be in touch with you? How do they need yeah, to follow absolutely. you? Absolutely. So you can either follow me on Instagram with the Regan Pettigrew. It's going to be T H E R E A G A N Pettigrew P E T T I G R E W, or you can go to my website redsunrisingpublishing.com, and you can find me there. The link for the book will be there, or you can buy me on Amazon. For um, Suicide in Slow Motion is the book. It's also on Kindle, and we're going to be releasing an audio book in 24, April 24, that is. Also, if you guys are in the southeast, on the east coast, and you want to fly out, we're doing an event at April 3rd at the Holiday Bar. It's going to be like a blues slash book signing kind of event with High West Whiskey. And then we're going to be doing another event April 24th. It's Supply and Demand, another VFW industry veteran event. Also, we're going to do a book reading. We're going to try to get some other veterans to get involved. 
as well. And then we're going to be doing another event May um, 24th at Cafe AM in Sandy Springs, Atlanta, Georgia. God damn, man. Yeah. The nature. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, buddy. That's fucking great. Yeah, buddy. This was a pleasure, man. Um, To be continued. This is, I'm so glad you got on and and we were able to talk, but um, let me know how things are going. I I really enjoyed the shit out of this. Me too, man. That was the savage wonder of Regan Pettigrew. There is a burgeoning veteran community, veteran arts community in Atlanta. And uh, talking to Reagan just reminded me how robust it is. I look forward to us being able to get down there and do some stuff. Um, But really just so impressed with Reagan and and excited to see what the future holds for him and what these next projects will look like. I'm not going to lie. I was a little bummed that he's taken some time off to act, Um, but I get it. You know, that's a, that's a big, that's a big uh, project he just birthed. And that was a long time coming. He probably needs some downtime to collect himself and prepare what is next. And on that note, what is next for Veterans Repertory Theater? What can I tell you guys about? Okay, a bunch of things. First off, Savage Wonder Around. It's coming back to Alexandria, Virginia on April 13th. If you're in or around the D.C. area on April 13th, come on over to the Principal Gallery in Old Town on King Street. Uh, we would love to see you. We have a dynamite show. Charles McCaffrey, Logan Vath, Chris Battles, all three. No, no, I was about to say all three have been on the show. That's not true. Uh, we still got to get Logan on the show before Wonderground, but we're working on that. Um, but anyway, and Dex, of course, will be performing. It's going to be a badass show. It's Savage Wonderground, Three Strangers. So we're basically examining the thief, the lover, the warrior, and um, three characters with intersecting stories. And we're taking you through the beautiful, world-class principal art gallery um, to tell you that story through song, spoken word, poetry, prose, and um, visual art from from uh, Chris Battles, who is the Marine Corps artist in residence. I mean, that's fucking cool. How cool is that? You get to see the Marine Corps artist in residence painting or drawing. I don't know. Maybe he's painting. I don't know what he's going to do. Anyway. He'll be doing live art there for you. So really, really cool stuff. Tickets are 20 bucks. Uh, go to savagewonder.com. Savagewonder.com. Again, savagewonder.com. That's where you go to get your tickets. Um, and we'd love to see you there. We've had a great time. Last time we were in Alexandria, we're really looking forward to being there again and um, hanging out with y'all. So come on out. We would definitely love to see you. Um, other things that are happening. If you're in the greater Cornwall, New York area, our parlor starts on April 1st with David Mammoth's Speed the Plow. So our parlor stage reading series is back. Young Chris Meyer will take the stage for the first time in two decades to do to play Bobby Gould in David Mammoth's Speed the Plow. I'm very much looking forward to that. Of course, 800 things are happening all at once because... The universe could not just let me focus on acting. Um, so uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to really uh, get my mind right before I hit the stage. But it'll be it's really fun. It's a great piece. I'm really looking forward to doing it. And um, we've got Patrick Lillis from The Labyrinth, from The Farm Theater, coming out to direct 
the show. Um, Rick Busser. It's funny. I'll, I'll tell this. I'll tell this story. So, you know, we were talking about who to cast for Fox, the role opposite my character, Bobby Gould in Speed the Plow. And uh, Pat was like, oh, I know just the guy, uh, you know, um, Rick Busser. He's a great actor. Uh, love to work with him again, blah, 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 blah. And he calls him and says, oh, he's like, oh, he's like, uh, he, he lived in Queens. He's like, I think he moved, but let me, let me try to find where he is and see if he can get to Cornwall and, and do the shows. And he calls me back. He goes, oh, yeah, he bought a place in Cornwall. He's there now. Like motherfucker, everybody's here now. Um, it's great. We've got a great arts community developing here, uh, especially in the theater, which is really freaking cool. Um, what with you know us building a theater, so very very excited for that. Um, if you're in the Greater Cornwall, New York area, by all means, come on out. It's pay what you can tickets. Um, we get you some beverages, some desserts. It, it really couldn't be a better, cheaper, more fun way to spend Saturday night in the Hudson Valley. So there's that. And then, am I getting a little ahead of myself? I am, because we're about to drop the press release on this. Any second now. Uh, I don't know if I can say this out loud. Is this going to be cleared by the time this episode comes out? I think it will be. I think we're good to do this. Okay, I'll let you guys know. It's a secret. Still. As I say this right now, it's a secret. I'm guessing it won't be by Monday. I'm betting it won't be by Monday. Fuck, I hope it isn't by Monday. Anyway, I'll let you guys know since you listened to this episode. I'll give you a little sneak peek. We are co-producing a series of stage readings of Jason Pizzarello's full-length playwriting competition winning play, Brat. It won our very first full-length playwriting competition, um, we are, it's not a full production by any stretch of the imagination. It's really just readings, but it's four of them following a couple of days of rehearsal in the city. And we are doing this co-production at Penguin Rep Theater in Rockland County. Penguin Rep has been around for 40 years. It has a great history. Joe Brancato, the artistic director, interestingly enough, also a Coast Guard veteran from like the early 80s. Um, so he's been doing this forever. They've built up a great little theater over there and, um, our good friend and board of advisor, Bob Balaban will be directing it, which is very fucking cool for us. Can I tell you who the star is? Am I allowed to tell you who the star is? Okay. I'm going to tell you, you ready? It's a two person play. Let me just say that. The two characters are a mother and son. The son, we don't know who's going to play that yet. <laughs> We're still trying to find that person. Can I tell you who's going to play the mother? Are you ready for who's going to play the mother? It's going to be badass. Oh, man. Should I let this out yet? I'm not going to let it out. I'm chickening out. It's, it's very cool. It's somebody who's spot on for the role. We're very, very excited. I can't tell you who it is yet. I'm not comfortable doing it yet. I want to make sure. I mean, the, the thing is the round is leaving the chamber as we speak, but we got to get, I, I want to get everybody signed and, and all the contracts signed before I tell you anything else. It's going to be very cool. The readings are happening. Are you ready for it? Again, 
this is premature because tickets aren't even available yet. They might be by the time you're hearing this. Maybe. I'm not 100% sure on that. But right now we're looking for the readings to happen April 14th, 15th, and 16th. There will be two readings on the 15th. be a matinee and an evening performance. But uh, four shows, April 14th, 15th, and 16th. So if you look at your calendar, if you're in the D.C. area on the 13th, you're coming to see us in Old Town Alexandria. If you're in the New York City, Hudson Valley area on the 14th, 15th, or 16th, we're going to be right back up here doing that show. We have a busy, busy start to the season this year. So can't wait to see for that. I wish I could tell you guys everything. I mean, for that matter, I'd like to throw out a ticket link too. Um, I can tell you the tickets will be available um, at Penguin Rep's site. You can also go to our site to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. We'll just, we'll have, you know, tons of opportunities for you to get the tickets. Um, they'll just link over to the Penguin Rep site. And uh, yeah, so very, very cool stuff uh, coming. Big, big, big start to this 2023 season. And uh, yeah, kicking it off with a bang. Okay, so a lot of stuff happening out there. Um, I don't think I've done anything else to plug at the moment. I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for putting this episode out. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we will dive further into the savage wonder of veterans in the arts.